right, uh, we're coming now to the, um, the highlight of our symposium, uh, the annual B. Kenneth Simon Lecture in Constitutional Thought. As the lecture's description implies, this is an opportunity for our speaker to reach beyond the cases just decided or upcoming and to reflect on some of the broader constitutional issues that may be before the nation. That's exactly what the lecturer's namesake wanted. The late Ken Simon was a generous donor to the Cato Institute. Among other things, he endowed the B. Kenneth Simon Chair in Constitutional Studies that I am honored to hold. Ken was an engineer trained at Cornell University after he returned from service in World War II. An industrialist and entrepreneur, he lived most of his life in Pittsburgh where he located his company. His avocation, however, was the study of the American founding, a major event in which, of course, we're celebrating today, Constitution Day. He would be pleased with the 12 lectures that have preceded today's, uh, the most recent of which is the lead essay in the new Cato Supreme Court you review that you picked up on the way in, that's Judge uh, David Sintel's essay. And I'm sure that Ken would be especially pleased with the lecture that you're about to hear. Uh, at uh, lunch today with a cast of Supreme Court reporters, Judge Sykes led a wide-ranging discussion of legal and constitutional questions, demonstrating uh, uh, a, uh, that she is a judge's judges. I first heard her uh, just a few years ago when she gave a dinner address for the Institute for Justice. Uh, one often hears judicial talks restrained by the limits appropriately placed on judges. Uh, she respected those limits, but she still was able to say far more than one normally hears uh, in such circumstances. Judge Sykes uh, sits on one of the nation's most interesting courts, the United States Courts of Appeal, Court of Appeals for the Seventh Circuit, which we've already heard uh, discussed uh, in these proceedings. Um, she was nominated by President George W. Bush and confirmed by the Senate in June of 2004. Prior to appointment uh, to the federal bench, she was a justice on the Wisconsin Supreme Court, to which she was appointed by Governor Tommy Thompson in September of 1999 to fill a mid-year uh, vacancy. And then she was elected to a full 10-year term in a statewide election in April of 2000. From 1992 to 1999, she served on the state trial bench in Milwaukee County, deciding the kinds of common law cases that are very, the very foundation of our law. A native of the Milwaukee area, uh, Judge Sykes earned a bachelor's degree in journalism at Northwestern University, after which she worked as a reporter for the Milwaukee Journal before earning her law degree at Marquette University Law School. She clerked for federal judge Terrence Evans, then practiced law before being appointed to the bench. Here to talk about judicial minimalism and its limits, please welcome Judge Diane Sykes. Thank you, Roger. And I'm delighted to be here at Cato, an institute that has um, done more than most to recover and uh, explain the Constitution to the public um, and has done us all a great service in that regard. So I'm delighted by the invitation to join you this afternoon. I'm also very honored to join the ranks of such distinguished prior Simon lecturers as Randy Barnett and Judge Santel, who was here last year, and Janice Rogers-Brown and Mike McConnell and others. So it's a great honor for me to be here with you today. Next month, as we've been discussing here today, the curtain rises on the 10th term of the Roberts Court. From the beginning, Chief Justice Roberts has been explicit about wanting to foster greater consensus on the court. It's often suggested that the court's legitimacy would be enhanced by fewer 5-4 rulings along the usual conservative liberal fault line. In his confirmation hearing testimony, and more fully in his first major public address, the chief articulated his view that, that a greater degree of consensus in the court's decisions would bring clear jurisprudential benefits. 
He explained that unanimous or near unanimous decisions promote clarity and guidance for the lawyers and for the lower courts trying to figure out what the Supreme Court meant. More fundamentally, he said the rule of law is strengthened when there is greater coherence and agreement about what the law is. He famously set for himself this guiding principle. If it is not necessary to decide more to dispose of a case, in my view, it is necessary not to decide more. The broader the agreement among the justices, the more likely it is that the decision is on the narrowest possible ground. Much of the early commentary about the court's last term including uh, much of what we heard today at this symposium, has focused on the significant increase in the number of unanimous judgments. As others today have noted and is um, recorded in the um, Supreme Court review that you all uh, received today, for the first time since the 1940s, almost two-thirds of the court's merits opinions in OT 2013 were unanimous on the bottom line, if not necessarily in their reasoning. This is generally thought to be a striking and welcome development, and in some key respects it is, although it's important to note that a significant part of the court's docket each term consists of technical statutory or procedural issues that do not engage the philosophical differences among the justices. Still, the uptick in bottom line agreement is remarkable, and especially so in cases raising difficult constitutional questions. In this category, the court achieved this greater degree of consensus, if that's what it is, for the most part by following the chief's maxim about narrow decisions, applying one technique or another of judicial minimalism. The constitutional avoidance canon is a prominent example and comes under this broad umbrella, but there are a few others as well. This dynamic will undoubtedly fuel the ongoing debate about whether the Roberts Court is committed to minimalism, and if so, whether that's a good thing. I'd like to offer a few observations on this topic from my vantage point as a lower court judge looking for guidance from my superiors. My views on this subject are also influenced by my experience as a member of the Supreme Court of my home state of Wisconsin. In that role, it was my privilege to interpret, articulate, and apply the law in the common law tradition on a closely divided court of last resort. We should probably begin by defining our terms. Modern judicial minimalism as a distinctive theory of decision-making is usually credited to Professor Cass Sunstein, who coined the term and is the leading academic expositor and proponent of this approach to judging. Sunstein proposes that judges should generally avoid broad rules and abstract theories and attempt to focus their attention only on what is necessary to resolve particular disputes. He advocates a practice of saying no more than necessary to justify an outcome and leaving as much as possible undecided. Minimalist judging of the Sunstein variant proceeds along two dimensions. First, judicial opinions should be narrow rather than wide, deciding the case at hand while avoiding pronouncing rules for resolving future cases. Second, judicial opinions should be shallow rather than deep, avoiding large theoretical controversies and issues of basic principle, relying instead on incompletely theorized agreements that enable judges with diverse philosophical commitments to join in bottom line judgments, leaving the more fundamental questions of principle undecided. Modern minimalism is justified primarily on pragmatic grounds. Minimalist decision methods, so the argument goes, account for the limitations on judicial competence, in particular the limits on judges' ability to accurately assess the consequences of a decision one way or the other. Narrow, shallow decisions reduce the risk and cost of error. Minimalist decisions are also said to be more pluralistic, demonstrating respect for diverse perspectives by leaving fundamental matters of principle unaddressed. Minimalism recommends itself for other reasons, too. It claims to, pro to promote stability and predictability, to maintain flexibility for future courts, and to empower democratic deliberation by giving political decision-makers room to maneuver and respond to constitutional questions left open by the Supreme Court. On the surface, the theory sounds like it's limited to process values, but it's not. 
Substantively, minimalism starts from a presumption of deference to the political branches and self-consciously avoids invalidating acts of the legislative and executive branches, either by upholding them on the merits or by using various techniques for avoiding constitutional questions. The point of defaulting to deference is to recognize the limited role of the federal judiciary and to make large space for democratic self-government. Minimalism also advocates a strong version of stare decisis. Consistent adherence to precedent promotes stability and predictability and is said to preserve the court's institutional interests. On a more philosophical level, modern minimalism promotes itself as a hedge against judicial supremacy. It calls on judges to go slowly and in small steps. The emphasis on incrementalism and gradualism evokes the philosophy of Edmund Burke, who viewed governance as a practical endeavor guided by experience and was, uh, was skeptical of grand political theories. Burke counseled deference to long-settled practices and traditions tested by experience and the collective wisdom of society accumulated over generations. He held the common law in high regard. Of course, the founding generation didn't need a theory of judicial minimalism. The common law tradition, as it was understood and practiced at the time, was itself essentially minimalist. And important minimalist features are embedded in our constitutional design. The common law, as known and applied in the courts of the new American states, was based on English customary law. And in the Blackstonian tradition, was found, not made. The philosophical terrain was also different than it is now. The framers inherited a strong natural rights tradition, but they also understood that because natural rights principles are quite general, today we would say underdetermined, the judges of the new federal judiciary, like their counterparts in the states, would be called upon to exercise a substantial element of judgment in individual cases. As a constraint on that authority, Article III limits the judicial power to cases or controversies that are explicitly judicial in nature. The framers rejected a more active political role for judicial review by deciding against a council of revision. In addition to the constraining effect of the case or controversy limitation, the framing generation generally understood that federal judges would follow long-established norms of judicial practice. They would be bound down by rules and precedents, to paraphrase the Federalist Number 78. This was thought to be a sufficient check against arbitrary decisions based on will rather than judgment to paraphrase the Federalist again. Now, that was the old form of judicial minimalism. These understandings were swept away by the legal realism of the 20th century. The new judicial minimalism responds to the realist idea that appellate judges engage in discretionary lawmaking when they decide cases, including and especially cases of constitutional interpretation. If judges make constitutional law, then we need some theory or method to guide them in that enterprise. Now, no one in this room needs to be reminded of the normative constitutional theories that have been in contention since the New Deal. But I'll remind you anyway, because it helps to place the new minimalism in its proper historical perspective. The Living Constitution School of Thought held sway in the decades that spanned the Warren Court and the early Burger Court years. This evolutionary approach authorized judges to interpret the core principles of the Bill of Rights and the 14th Amendment to reflect contemporary values and to adapt the Constitution's broad language to address modern conditions and problems. In practice, this theory produced the rights revolution of the Warren Court, continuing under the Burger Court, and was aggressively interventionist in implementing social, political, and legal reform by judicial decree. The results were in some cases a virtue and in others not so much, but in all cases the theory empowered the judiciary to deploy the Constitution as a malleable instrument of social and legal change at the expense of the democratic process. The conservative counter-revolution began in earnest in the 1980s and initially focused on restoring the practice of restraint understood as judicial deference to the policy choices and value judgments of the political branches. In the early years, the primary concern was to stand athwart the jurisprudence of the Warren Court yelling, stop. Apologies to William F. Buckley. 
But the emphasis on restraint did not address how the Constitution ought to be interpreted and applied. That would come later as originalism was recovered, developed, and refined. Your presence here at a Cato seminar suggests to me that you don't need a primer on originalism, so I'll just summarize. The animating principles of originalism arise from the legal justification for judicial review. The judicial duty to decide cases according to law, including the law of the Constitution. Briefly stated, the basic theory is this. Because our Constitution is written, unlike the British Constitution, and because it is supreme law adopted by the people as the original sovereign that brought the American government into being, Constitutional interpretation ought to be grounded in the public meaning of the text, as understood at the time of ratification. On this view, constitutional adjudication begins with an inquiry into the meaning and scope of the provision in question based on the text and the structural and historical evidence of its original meaning. Anchoring constitutional adjudication in the text, structure, and history of the Constitution is thought to best legitimize the power of judicial review. We all know our Marbury versus Madison. The judiciary's authority to set aside an otherwise valid law in the name of the Constitution arises by inference from the judge's duty to apply the law, including the law of the Constitution, in individual cases. Originalism holds that the interpretive inquiry into the law of the Constitution ought to be grounded in and tethered to the principles the framers and ratifiers fixed in its text and structure. Originalism first established a foothold in the legal academy and eventually arrived at the Supreme Court. Professor Sunstein's minimalism is a response to the rise of originalism and is, in fact, meant to check or counter it. Minimalist theory uh, occupies some common ground with what has come to be known as judicial pragmatism, which is a flexible approach to judging that focuses on the consequences of judicial decisions. The aim of pragmatism is to achieve good overall outcomes, although its practitioners differ in their account of what is a good outcome. Minimalism and pragmatism are overlapping theories of consequentialist judging. Both mix law with practical politics. This brings me to my final point about modern judicial minimalism. The theory is flexible about when judges should proceed minimally. It explicitly acknowledges that not every case calls for a minimalist ruling. As Sunstein candidly puts it, the pragmatic foundations of minimalism suggest that constitutional law should not be insistently or dogmatically minimalist. In other words, the theory contemplates that there are times and places in which minimalism is rightly abandoned. There's a non-exclusive multi-factor test for determining when it's best to issue a minimalist decision and when it's best to go maximalist. But you all probably guessed that already. It should be clear from this description that although minimalism is an approach to judging, it's not a theory of constitutional interpretation. Unlike originalism, it's not a method for determining the meaning, scope, and application of the structural constitution or the liberty guarantees in the Bill of Rights or the 14th Amendment. Instead, it's a theory of deference. Judges should defer to the political branches of government and to the decisions of prior courts, except when they shouldn't. It's also a theory of avoidance. Judges should not make broad, uh, broad pronouncements on foundational matters of constitutional principle, except when they should. Got that? I'm oversimplifying, of course, and I do plead guilty to a little bit of exaggeration for emphasis, but only a very little bit. There's more to this theory as an academic matter, and other strains and versions of minimalism do exist. This is not meant to be a comprehensive review, but it's enough for our purposes today. As you've probably gathered, minimalism can and has been criticized for offering no genuine guidance to judges concerning how they should proceed in constitutional cases. As Professor Tara Smith has noted, the instruction to the judiciary to minimize your impact is hollow. Critics have also attacked minimalism for privileging the doctrinal status quo. Professor Sai Prakash has noted that whereas originalism privileges the original public meaning of the Constitution, minimalism, because it is precedent-focused, tends to privilege the views of the Warren and Burger courts. 
Other critics have argued that by promoting shallow decision-making, especially in cases involving broad constitutional principles like free speech and equality, the theory permits judges to smuggle in their own unstated and unexamined ethical assumptions and preferences. And as I've already noted, the pragmatic flexibility in minimalist theory gives us no rule or standard for deciding when it should apply and when it should not. For my part, and you've probably already guessed this already, I side with the critics. A unifying theory of minimalism is both unworkable and unwise. Article III constraints on the judicial power already enforce a degree of minimalism, and all judges respect and reason from precedent. We have well-established doctrines to ensure that judges do not unnecessarily decide constitutional questions and the norm of analogical reasoning has a natural constraining effect. In other words, minimalism is inherent in standard judicial method. We do not need a heavy theoretical thumb on the scales. What's much more important is how the traditional sources of law and legal interpretation, text, history, canons of interpretation, precedent, and other well-established tools of the judicial craft are prioritized, weighted, and applied. So with the theory now in place and my own position out in the open, let's return to the question of the extent to which our current Supreme Court relies on minimalist methods. I've selected four representative examples from among the more important constitutional cases of the court's recent term. Three unanimous, one not. I know you've already heard about most of these cases today, so what I'm looking for are the minimalist data points. McCullen versus Coakley was the abortion clinic buffer zone case. The court unanimously held that a Massachusetts law establishing a 35-foot buffer zone at abortion clinics violated the First Amendment. But the justices were sharply divided on the rationale. Chief Justice Roberts wrote for himself and Justices Ginsburg, Breyer, Sotomayor, and Kagan. He first addressed whether the buffer zone law was a content-based restriction on speech. This inquiry determined the standard of review. Content-based laws are presumptively unconstitutional and get strict judicial scrutiny. Content-neutral laws are subject to a more relaxed standard of review. The chief held that the Massachusetts law was content-neutral, but failed intermediate scrutiny because it burdened more speech than necessary. Justice Scalia concurred in the judgment only, excoriating the court for gratuitously deciding the content-neutrality question. If the statute was unconstitutional under the less demanding standard of review, then there was no reason to address the question of content neutrality, the predicate for strict scrutiny. In other words, resolving the question was logically unnecessary once the court concluded that the Massachusetts law flunked the more lenient standard of review. The court could have taken a minimalist approach and reserved the question for another day. To no one's surprise, Justice Scalia also thought the court reached the wrong conclusion about content neutrality. He explained why the Massachusetts law flagrantly targeted anti-abortion speech. Justices Kennedy and Thomas joined his concurrence, and Justice Alito separately concurred, although he essentially agreed, agreed with Justice Scalia that the buffer zone law discriminated on the basis of viewpoint. Justice Scalia was quite right that a more limited approach, assuming but not deciding the content neutrality question, would have gotten the job done in McCullen. The Massachusetts law would fail, but the court would not pronounce judgment on the constitutionality of, of abortion clinic buffer zones more generally. That kind of decision would have been minimalist in the sense of deciding no more than necessary. Instead, by deciding the question as he did, the chief achieved a unanimous judgment, and he did so by writing an opinion that might be characterized as minimalist in a more substantive sense. By ruling that the Massachusetts law was content neutral, the court signaled that buffer zone laws are generally permissible, if properly tailored. That holding leaves room for political decision makers to maneuver in this speech-sensitive area. If the decision on content neutrality had gone the other way, all abortion clinic buffer zone laws would be presumptively unconstitutional, and the court's controversial decision in Hill versus Colorado upholding a buffer zone law would have to be overruled or strictly limited to its facts. Indeed, the McCullen cert grant had included that very question, as Justice, Justice Scalia did note in his concurrence. 
The chief's content neutrality holding allowed the court to avoid overruling a precedent. In notable contrast, in McCutcheon versus Federal Election Commission, another important free speech case decided earlier in the term that you've heard about today, the court specifically declined to address a key question about the standard of review precisely because doing so would have meant revisiting longstanding precedent. McCutcheon raised a challenge to the federal limits on the aggregate amount a person may contribute to candidates and political committees in a single election cycle. In Buckley versus Vallejo, the court's seminal 1976 campaign finance decision, the court drew a distinction between campaign contributions and campaign expenditures. Limits on contributions to candidates are evaluated under intermediate scrutiny and may be justified based on the government's interest in preventing corruption or its appearance. But limits on expenditures get strict scrutiny and usually flunk. The contribution expenditure distinction and the different standards of review were specifically attacked in McCutcheon. The court sidestepped the question, finding it unnecessary to parse the differences between the two standards because the aggregate limits were unconstitutional even under the more lenient test. Justice Scalia saw something amiss in the court's decision to avoid the predicate standard of review question in McCutcheon and decide it in McCullen. He bluntly confronted the court in his concurrence. What has changed since McCutcheon? Quite simple, he said. This is an abortion case, and McCutcheon was not. The chief responded that applying any standard of review other than intermediate scrutiny in McCutcheon would have required overruling a precedent. Yes, but the same was true in McCullen. Hill versus Colorado was on the line if strict scrutiny applied although perhaps it could have been limited or distinguished, neither of which were viable options if the court had taken the plunge and revisited the contribution expenditure distinction in McCutcheon. Overruling this aspect of Buckley was fraught with consequences for our politics. Deciding the content neutrality question in McCullen was not. Thanks to Marcia Coyle of the National Law Journal, we have a window on the chief's thinking in McCullen. In a revealing interview with Justice Ginsburg in August, the veteran Supreme Court reporter asked the justice why she had joined the chief's opinion in McCullen. Justice Ginsburg replied that the chief had made a very important case that regulations on abortion clinic protests are content neutral. That was the most important thing to me about the chief's decision. She continued, my initial view was that this is permissible legislation, but if you looked at the record, it was so sparse, it wasn't necessary to have that 35-foot zone. She also observed that Massachusetts had already gone back and changed its buffer zone law. How interesting. The chief joined with his more liberal colleagues to leave open the possibility of regulation in this area. The court's content neutrality holding may be debatable, but we see clear deference to political policymakers here. Harris versus Quinn is another example of the court's complex relationship with the minimalist impulse to avoid confrontations with precedents. The question in Harris was whether Illinois violated the First Amendment by requiring in-home caregivers to pay public employee union dues, even if they did not support the union's activities. In Abood versus uh, Detroit Board of Education, the court had rejected a claim by public school teachers that requiring them to pay union dues violated their right to free speech and association. The in-home caregivers in Harris, however, were not public sector employees in the usual sense. They were employed primarily by their private customers. The state's role was limited to compensating them with Medicaid funds. The issue in Harris was whether Abood controlled, and if so, whether it should be overruled. The court broke 5-4 along the usual conservative-liberal fault line. Writing for the majority, Justice Alito held that the First Amendment prohibited the collection of union dues from the in-home caregivers. The decision was carefully limited to quasi-public employees. The court left Abood intact. The really interesting thing about Justice Alito's opinion is its extended discussion of what he called the questionable foundations of Abood, with particular emphasis on the conceptual and practical distinctions between private and public sector collective bargaining, and the special problem in public sector cases of distinguishing between union expenditures that are made for collective bargaining purposes and those that are made to achieve political ends. 
for the dissenters, this was all just gratuitous dicta. Now we see the shoe on the other foot. Justice Kagan, writing for herself and Justices Ginsburg, Breyer, and Sotomayor, pointedly criticized her colleagues for failing to suppress the urge to take pot shots at a boot. Her words, not mine. Her complaint is understandable, but misplaced. The first question in Harris was whether the rule of Abood was controlling. This necessarily required the court to decide whether to extend the holding of that case to quasi-public employees. The majority concluded that it should not, and that conclusion required an explanation. True, a minimalist justice might have said less, but under-reasoned decisions can seem arbitrary and evasive. In the minimalist taxonomy, perhaps Harris is best classified as an opinion of narrow deepness. The opinion is narrow because it is limited to its facts, but it is also deep because the constitutional principle is carefully explained. I'll spend just a few moments on Noel Canning, the Recess Appointments Clause case. As in McCullen, the court was unanimous in the judgment, but divided 5-4 on the rationale. All nine justices agreed that President Obama lacked the authority to make three recess appointments to the NLRB when the Senate was in pro forma session in January 2012. Justice Breyer, writing for a majority that included Justice Kennedy on the left side of the bench, held that the pro forma sessions of the Senate count as sessions, not as periods of recess. But on the remaining questions in the case, the meaning of the term recess and whether the vacancy must actually happen during a recess, Justice Breyer deferred to presidential practice, which since the Civil War era had shown increased reliance on the recess appointment power. Based on this historical experience, Justice Breyer held that the term recess included intrust session recesses and that the vacancy need not happen during a recess. The minimalist data point in Justice Breyer's opinion is this. He thought it best not to upset the compromises and working arrangements that the elected branches of government have themselves reached. Updating the clause to reflect the more expansive modern day understanding required the court to set some artificial barriers on the president's use of this power. Justice Breyer declared that a recess of three days is too short to permit an appointment without Senate consent. A recess of more than 10 days is generally long enough, and a recess between three and 10 days may or may not qualify depending upon the exigencies. Justice Scalia's concurrence is both rigorously originalist and emphatic that the court's duty in structure of government cases is to enforce the original boundaries of the separation of powers, not to endorse practices that seem more prudent in light of modern experience. He was joined by the Chief and Justices Thomas and Alito. The last case I'll mention is the term's most important federalism challenge, Bond versus the United States. Now, I know you've already heard a good deal about the facts of that interesting case, um, which are very unusual. The case really illustrates how an aggressive charging decision by a local US attorney can resurface a profound but long dormant constitutional question. In 2006, Carol Ann Bond learned that her best friend was pregnant and that her husband was the child's father. She responded to this betrayal by repeatedly trying to injure her now ex-friend by assaulting her with toxic chemicals, by spreading them on things she would touch, her mailbox, her car door, the doorknob at her house. The victim was not seriously injured, but postal inspectors put the house under surveillance and caught Bond stealing mail from the victim's mailbox and putting chemicals in the muffler of her car. Bond was charged with mail theft, of course, but the prosecutor also included charges of possessing and using a chemical weapon in violation of the Chemical Weapons Convention Implementation Act, adopted in 1998 to implement the International Convention on Chemical Weapons. The act defines chemical weapon very broadly and included Bond's conduct. She argued that the crime was purely local, and that the chemical weapons statute exceeded the enumerated powers of Congress and invaded those reserved to the states by the 10th Amendment. The first time her case was before the court, back in 2011, the justices addressed only the question of standing. May an individual assert a 10th Amendment challenge? The court unanimously said yes. The Constitution's federal structure protects the liberty of all persons within a state by ensuring that laws enacted in excess of delegated governmental power cannot direct or control their actions. 
When the case returned to the court on the merits, the government specifically disclaimed any reliance on the commerce power and defended the statute based solely on the necessary and proper clause as applied to the authority of the national government to make treaties. This argument rested largely on a single statement in the 1920 case of Missouri versus Holland. So while the first appeal in Bond had raised a narrow question of, uh, question of standing, this time the stakes were very different. The case pressed hard on the boundaries of the Necessary and Proper Clause and its interplay with the treaty power. It also tested the court's willingness to enforce the Tenth Amendment. To complicate matters, the case called into question a long-standing but largely unexamined precedent, a perfect storm. The court unanimously reversed Bond's conviction, but again the justices were divided on the rationale. Writing for himself and five of his colleagues, the Chief Justice avoided the high-stakes constitutional question and the uncomfortable need to reconsider Holland by construing the statute so that it did not reach Bond's conduct. The Chief began his statutory analysis by noting that Congress legislates against the backdrop of certain unexpressed presumptions, including those grounded in the relationship between the federal government and the states. In light of this federalism presumption, the chief found the statute ambiguous based on its improbably broad reach. So he trimmed the statute to cover only the possession and use of chemicals of the sort that an ordinary person would associate with instruments of chemical warfare. Justice Scalia cried foul. In yet another concurrence that reads like a dissent, he accused the court of shirking its duty to decide the case by turning a federalism-inspired interpretive presumption on its head. Background principles of federalism may be useful in choosing between two plausible readings of an ambiguous statute, but here the court was using the statute's disruptive effect on the federal-state balance as a reason to find an utterly clear statute ambiguous. This interpretive move, he said, distorted the law and held the potential for future mischief. The vagueness of the court's ordinary person test for criminal liability raised a whole new set of constitutional concerns. The court had delivered a supposedly narrow opinion, which, in order to be narrow, set forth interpretive principles never before imagined that will bedevil our jurisprudence and proliferate litigation for years to come, he said. He was joined by Justices Thomas and Alito in concluding that the statute exceeded Congress's power under the Necessary and Proper Clause as applied to the treaty power. Stepping back now, these cases reflect what I think is indeed a noteworthy feature of the Roberts Court at age 10. Its preference for using minimalist techniques to avoid or soften or at least postpone confrontation with the political branches in structurally or politically sensitive cases. Although the constitutional avoidance doctrine was not specifically mentioned in Bond, the chief's analysis exemplifies the modern version of constitutional avoidance. The original or classic avoidance canon dates to the Marshall Court. As described by Justice Story, the basic rule is this. If a statute admits of two interpretations, one of which brings it within and the other presses it beyond the constitutional authority of Congress, it will become the court's duty to adopt the former construction unless the other conclusion is forced upon the court by language altogether unambiguous. The avoidance canon underwent a subtle but important change in the 20th century. The modern version directs judges to construe statutes to avoid constitutional doubt. This much broader idea of constitutional avoidance took hold during the New Deal era and was cemented in a famous concurring opinion by Justice Brandeis in the 1936 case of Ashwander versus Tennessee Valley Authority. Critics charge that the modern version of the doctrine distorts rather than preserves the separation of powers. As my colleague Frank Easterbrook has memorably put it, modern avoidance doctrine acts as a roving commission to rewrite statutes to taste. On this view, the constitutional doubt canon is simultaneously unfaithful to statutory text and an affront to the political branches. In other words, judicial amendment of statutes in the name of constitutional avoidance both distorts the law and displaces the prerogatives and responsibilities of the political branches. But, as Judge Easterbrook has noted, the justices are addicted to it. 
There are many recent examples, the most controversial of which is NFIB versus Sibelius, the challenge to the individual insurance mandate in the Affordable Care Act. Sometimes these avoidance techniques simply delay the confrontation. In Shelby County versus Holder, decided in uh, June of 2013, the court struck down the coverage formula of Section 4 of the Voting Rights Act, which is the trigger for the preclearance requirements in Section 5 of the Act. Four years earlier, in Northwest Austin versus Holder, the court had transparently signaled its discomfort with the coverage formula, which was based on a decades-old baseline that did not reflect changes in voting and discriminatory election practices when Congress reauthorized the act in 2006. In a decision by Chief Justice Roberts again, the court sidestepped the tough constitutional question about the validity of this part of the act by issuing a narrow decision, holding that the petitioner in the case, a Texas utility district, could bail out of the preclearance requirement. To reach this conclusion, however, the court had to really stretch the statutory definition of political subdivision well beyond its text. Northwest Austin was nearly unanimous only Justice Thomas would have reached the constitutional question. Northwest Austin might be understood as an example of minimalism as a signaling device or a form of temporary abstention to allow the political branches to correct an identified constitutional defect. Although the court avoided the constitutional question, it took pains to explain that the preclearance requirement and its application to a limited set of states cut against basic principles of federalism and equal sovereignty, clearly signaling what it wanted Congress to do. When Congress did not address the formula and the issue returned to the court in Shelby County, the court was direct about its methodology. With the Chief Justice again writing, this time for a five-justice majority, the court candidly explained its use of the avoidance doctrine in Northwest Austin. He said, in 2009, we took care to avoid ruling on the constitutionality of the Voting Rights Act when asked to do so. But in issuing that decision, we expressed our broader concerns about the constitutionality of the act. Congress could have updated the coverage formula at that time, but did not do so. Its failure to act leaves us today with no choice but to declare Section 4B of the act unconstitutional. The no choice language is interesting. A nearly unanimous court used a minimalist decision as a soft power tool to give the political branches an opportunity to correct an identified constitutional problem. But a narrow majority of the court proceeded to judgment on the ultimate constitutional question when the political fix was not forthcoming. Minimalism simply put off the constitutional day of reckoning. In other contexts, however, the court is slow to circle back to important structural questions left open. In some areas of the constitutional law, the Roberts Court has been decidedly non-minimalist. Citizens United, the game-changing campaign finance decision, is a prominent example, although it too was preceded by a minimalist compromise. In, a, in the uh, plurality decision in the 2007 case of Federal Election Commission versus Wisconsin Right to Life, the Chief Justice had crafted a narrow as-applied remedy to avoid striking down the federal ban on political speech sponsored by corporations. When that remedy was shown to be seriously inadequate, the court revisited the matter in Citizens United, invalidating the ban as an unconstitutional restriction on core political speech. Riley versus California, handed down in June, is another good example of anti-minimalism at work. We now have a clear rule that the police must obtain a warrant to search a cell phone seized incident to arrest. Hosanna Tabor, the case recognizing a ministerial exception under the religion clauses, is another example of anti-minimalism. These decisions are notable for giving us clear foundational statements about what the law is, which in the end is the court's duty. At a time of deep political polarization, the modesty and consensus values claimed by judicial minimalism seem especially attractive. Restraint is indeed a personal and judicial virtue. Judicial mistakes on constitutional questions are extraordinarily difficult to fix. Arrogating too much power to the judiciary distorts our politics and undermines our ability to democratically shape and alter our basic legal, social, 
and economic institutions. But strong avoidance and deference doctrines are not the answer. They may serve prudential or political concerns, but they are not necessary to enforce the separation of powers, and indeed may undermine that critical feature in our constitutional design. The court's legitimacy arises from the source of its authority, which is, of course, the Constitution, and is best preserved by adhering to decision methods that neither expand nor contract, but legitimize the power of judicial review. The court's primary duty, in short, is not to minimize its role or avoid friction with the political branches, but to try as best it can to get the Constitution right. I thank you for your kind attention this afternoon and look forward to your questions. All right, we've got uh, time for a few questions uh, before our reception, so please wait till the microphone comes to you. Uh, give, me, give us your name and the affiliation that you may have. Neil, uh, Clark, Clark, we'll start right here with you. Right here, Clark Neely. Hi, Judge. Good to see you again. Nice to see you. Um, well, it's my tradition at these kinds of things to come up with a vaguely antagonistic question to ask for someone who's just given a talk about judicial method. I want to let you know I couldn't come up with one. So. <laughs> uh, right back there. Any other questions on this side? Hello, my name is Drew Clark. Could you address the Schutte case from the lens of the paradigm you've discussed this evening? Uh, yeah, that's the um, affirmative action political process theory case. Right. Um, that one's tough. Um, because in some senses, you know, it's an example of judicial minimalism of the sort that I'm talking about here, avoiding um, striking down precedent um, and deferring to the political branches. So it, it probably, um, you know, hits on minimalist data points in a couple of different respects. Um, on the other hand, you know, the political process doctrine was ripe for reconsideration, um, doesn't come up very often. Um, and the dissenters had, or I'm sorry, it was again a, a concurring um, opinion, um, taking the view that the court should have um, overruled the precedents that had um, adopted the political process theory um, and overruled them and gotten rid of them, cleansed the court's case law of that doctrine entirely. They have a valid point that because it doesn't come up very often and the court wouldn't have an opportunity to circle back to it later, that taking a min minimalist approach of avoiding it altogether um, was unwise in the situation. But it was, it was minimalist in the sense that the um, majority opinion deferred to the democratic process in the state of Michigan and avoided overruling precedent. Right here. Uh, Alden Abbott uh, Heritage Foundation. Uh, Judge, there are recent signs that some courts, there's a famous Louisiana Monks Caskets case that's been called by the press, maybe uh, thinking about applying a stricter form of scrutiny to economic liberties or perhaps going away from the judicially invented uh, doctrine of different levels of scrutiny for economic liberties as opposed to non-economic liberties. Do you think a minimalist uh, whatever one, a minimalist approach might want to hold to the earlier strict scrutiny precedents. Do you see some hope that this greater appreciation for economic liberties and for not differentiating among liberties uh, is gaining adherence uh, among uh, court of appeals judges? Um, <laughs> probably not. <laughs> Frankly. Um. You know, there, there are some that are receptive to a more general theory of justification, for lack of a better way to put it, that government has to justify its laws based on something um, more than an invented judicial rationale. Um, so, you know, that, that's getting some traction in some areas, um, but the, the impulse is still strongly one of deference, at least in my experience, reading cases and 
working at various levels of the court system in the state and federal system. Could I follow up on, uh, on Alden's question, uh, Judge Sykes? The, um, the modern view that you, that you, the post-New Deal view that you spoke of, of treating um, constitutional avoidance uh, as uh, avoiding constitutional doubt. One could say that the kind of question that Alden asked it, it leads to the conclusion that judges want to avoid applying anything other than a rational basis test for economic liberties, simply to avoid constitutional doubt. Because if they did otherwise, then a whole host of regulatory statutes would be in play. And is this the kind of thing that you're speaking of? Uh, the, the, I guess you could say... Slippery slope. Uh, well, slippery slope, sure. But it's also a shirking of the duty to apply the law as... Uh, as is implied by the idea of there being economic liberties. And if there are, then what's the judge to do? Just ignore them? Well, that's where the doctrine currently stands. Yes, I know. <laughs> I don't need to tell you that. And as that's lower just court, the problem. You know, as it? lower court judges, we have to follow the doctrine. We can't um, rewrite it. But, I mean, th this raises the whole question of the oath of office, does it not? You take an oath to uphold the Constitution not to avoid trouble. That, well, that's, that's, yeah, that raises the whole issue that we talked about at lunch today about a theory of precedent and yes. what's the judge's duty to the precedent or the court or the precedents of the court or the Constitution. And, um, you know, on one view, the decisions of the court are authoritative as evidence of what the law is, um, but stare decisis is a judicial policy that can be overridden when the decision is demonstrably wrong. Mm. So, I mean, it depends on what your theory of overruling is, and that's see. a difficult philosophical I'm question. Right up here uh, with his hand up. Any questions on this side? Yeah, all, uh, let's see, right here, uh, yes, uh, Adam. Uh, good evening, Judge. My name is Evan Schultz. Um, I just have a question on how this might play out for a district court judge, maybe even a panel of three judges having judicial firmness. I can see having the benefits that you said. But when you get up to the Supreme Court level where there's more contention between the justices, isn't there a risk that you'll lose a certain amount of that um, transparency, that you'll, lose, that you'll lose a certain amount of the um, guidance that you're seeking, and instead you'll just get broken coalitions of plurality opinions where you really get multiple, where you get a fractured opinion that gives less guidance. Right. No, I understand that. I mean, collegial courts have to work collegially, and, and there's sort of a, an art to knowing when to write separately and knowing when not to. Um, my, I saw Alan Gura here somewhere. My first, um, hi, my first exposure to a gun rights um, issue was when I was on the state Supreme Court in Wisconsin, and we had two cases that came to the court testing the, the state's new state constitutional amendment guaranteeing um, a right to keep and bear arms for a number of permitted purposes. And um, the, decision, the, the cases, the two tandem cases, produced... Um, six different opinions. I was the only member of the court not to write separately, and I wasn't really happy with any of those six opinions, but it, you know, one more opinion was not going to improve the situation. We needed to decide the cases. We needed to come up with a rule, and we came up with one that was reasonably respectful of the new right. Um, so, you know, working through the collegial judicial process um, is an art, for lack of a better way to put it. You have to be persuasive with your colleagues and um, know when to write and how to write to persuade them. Hi. Uh, Andrew Kloster. I'm, I'm at the Legal Center at Heritage, uh, also with Alden. Um, so first, I'd just like to say I appreciate the talk. I, I particularly appreciate um, something I've been thinking about for a while, which is, you know, which you point out numerous examples of how you relativize, in my opinion, minimalism. From one point of view, it's minimalistic. 
from another point of view, a lot of what they're doing is maximalistic. So I really, I appreciate that. My question sort of piggybacks on the last question, which is there's an economics literature um, out there talking, looking at collegial courts and just saying, gosh, the most important thing is the judgment. And I, I, my question is, um, looking at the Roberts Court, you know, um, and in your role as an, as an intermediate uh, court judge, um, how difficult is it to handle um, a unanimous opinion where the judgment is clear? Gosh, they're really in favor of these plaintiffs, but then it goes back down, and and there's just a lot of issues that were sort of unresolved versus a very clear but fractured opinion. You don't know if it's going to be long term the case because turnover on the court, et cetera, et cetera. So, right. Um- we have all kinds of difficulty at the Court of Appeals applying fractured opinions when there's no clear rule and we have to look for the narrowest possible ground on which the judges, the justices agreed um, and apply that rule. And that's, that's one of the sort of um, practical problems with minimalism when it doesn't give us a clear rule to apply. I didn't talk about that so much because I was really looking more at the the rule of law values um, problems with minimalism and not the practical concerns, but I guess this falls within that um, domain as well when the Court of Appeals can't figure out what um, the Supreme Court's rule is and have to sort of slog it out among ourselves. Um, there's um, chaos and, and um, inequities in application that are not consistent with rule of law values. Uh, we've got time for just one more question, and Randy Barnett, uh, one of our previous Simon lecturers. Uh, thanks, Jack Sykes, for the wonderful lecture. Um, it was a very sensitive uh, rendition of Cass Sunstein's uh, theory of minimalism, as well as uh, what happened, the evolution of uh, legal thinking about originalism and the rest. And it, it made me wonder, I have three closely related questions. How um, influenced our judges by academic work of the kind that Cass Sunstein does and of the kind originalist theorists have done. So that's closely related question number one. You wouldn't have a particular interest in that question. The the second is how much are judges sort of wedded to the judicial philosophy that they grew up with and brought with them on the court and are sort of intractable? And that really, that is sort of the third question too. How susceptible are judges to changing their views of these more fundamental questions uh, upon sort of change in the times and as as well as intellectual fashion. So if you can address any aspect of Mm -hmm. how judges relate to these ideas, I'd be interested in hearing it. You don't have to speak for yourself, but just based on what you've observed uh, uh, amongst the many judges that you've worked for with. Yeah, academic work is um, useful. Um, And I find it very useful. And most of my colleagues do as well. And I don't think that's unique to the Seventh Circuit. I mean, we do have a lot of former academics on our court who have, are inclined and have minds that are inclined in that direction. Um, but I don't think it's, it's unique to us. Um, and to your point about um, willingness to change views, that's, that's tough. Um, you know, once you've committed yourself in writing on a particular issue um, to um, acknowledge mistakes becomes very difficult. Um, you know, there are ways to, to do it. Um, but the willingness to change views, you did have Judge Posner in mind, didn't you? (laughs) I mean, you know, judges want to be seen as consistent, obviously. I think that's what your point is. And that's, you know, that's part of the institutional norm, um, that we want to be consistently applying, a particular decision method, um, but you know when it's been shown to be in error, um, you know there there are ways to move off of that. And I don't want to use the word evolve because that's really <laughs> loaded with pejorative. Um, but you know judges do um, learn and evolve in the role and. You know, I can say from my own perspective, I have. Um, I went on this, the state Supreme Court from the Milwaukee County Circuit Court seven years as a trial judge and really had to learn as I go. Um, and that was my experience there, and it has been on my current court, and I think that's fairly typical of other judges. They don't come with fully formed um, judicial philosophies that are rigid, 
I suppose some do, but most don't in my experience. They can be persuaded with the right arguments. I'm going to ask you one last question. How much did your experience deciding common law cases on a state court uh, affect your thinking about the law in general and your role now? Um, a, a lot is the short answer. Um, common law judging um, is different than deciding cases of um, constitutional or statutory interpretation. And the way that it's practiced now in the post-realist era after Roger Trainer, basically, um, is all about judicial policymaking. Um, and I didn't really subscribe to that um, approach during my time on the state Supreme Court, um, but I was in the minority uh, on that. Okay, with that, uh, let's wrap it up, but let's give a warm round of applause. <laughs>